0: Welcome to This is Civity Radio Show. My name is Gina Baleria. Civity helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference. And our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we welcome Stuart Chittenden, founder of Squish Talks. Stuart is a lawyer by training who has moved into the field of relationships and stories. Stuart, thank you for joining us. So tell me, how did conversation become such a driver in your life?
1: Practiced law for uh, perhaps fifteen years or so in uh, in England, but I suspect that many of us go through phases in life, seasons in life, where we are moved or called or spoken to by different uh, different passions, different sense of purpose, and uh, I'm. Uh but not ashamed to say that my 20s was uh, a, a decade of personal self-indulgence and selfishness, um, none of which um, I'm necessarily that proud of. <laughs> um, but my 30s and increasingly um, now I'm in my late 40s, I, I have become a little more outrospective, as it were, and a little more considerate about the world around me and my own personal responsibility, both to it and uh, and also to myself. So um I'll, I'll cut to the chase with um leaving uh, england uh through marriage to find my way to the uh midwest and it was here that in fact uh I- increasingly I just have had a growing sense of um, lack of cohesion and disharmony in the world around us and an increasing homogenization both of uh, physical proximity, but also emotional and mental proximity between uh, between us, and I mean us broadly in terms of just real people. And I'm um, sure I'm not the only person that has sensed over the years, and, and I'm not picking on any particular administration, this one or any before it, but a growing sense of moral unease, and that is really the driver uh, behind, I, I guess, my my calling to try and do some work that I feel I can offer as my contribution to a better society.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and as you know, many people are, are feeling this way. And uh, I, we feel it here in the U.S. and it's easy to it's easy to hang the hat on, oh, this party or this administration or this person. But in reality, you're right. This has been a long time in coming. There have been cultural, societal, technology forces at work and uh, choices we've made as people uh, that we didn't realize might lead us down these roads. But the fact of the matter is we are heading in this direction. I'm, I'm curious... Uh, from moving from England to the U.S., did you notice a shift there, or do you think this is sort of happening in many places?
1: It's happening in many places, and of course time it, itself has has changed the dynamic in, in both what I'd regard as my homeland of, of Britain, but also here too. The Britain that I experience now is not the same as I felt it was 15 years ago. And of course, in saying that one, Risks being categorized as someone who was always saying it was it was better back in the day, which of of course is wholly inaccurate but, right. um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a personal anecdote would help um the The, the last time I spent um, a longer period of time in England was just a month or two before the brexit vote, and I can honestly say that in the years that i've spent being an expat and travelling to and fro between Britain and america um it, is, it has never felt uncomfortable to me at all, ever, um, being back in Britain. I have always landed at Heathrow and felt as if I was putting a, a, you know, my feet in an old pair of slippers. It, just, mm. it, it was just very easy and comfortable and instantly familiar. But it was, it, it was shocking to me, and it took me about 72 hours to feel as if I was reacclimating to England in the month before the Brexit vote. And it didn't surprise me at all when, um, well, I was surprised, but it, it wasn't that surprising to me when Donald Trump won the election. Um, in the backdrop of what I had seen in Europe, there, there was a clear rise in um, a certain mindset among populations and, and um So in some ways, I am seeing similarities between Britain and here, and I think that's true across Europe and the rest of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've come to this point where uh, conversation has become a driver in a sense to get at this issue and potentially sort of counter it or or, or, or deal with it. Uh, so can, can you think of a moment where you realized, oh, gosh, conversation is the thing or, wow, this moment was really powerful. Or is this just something that you've adopted your whole life and became a natural sort of thing to do to try to mm-hmm. deal with this?
1: I'll I'll try to give you a, a, an explicit moment in a second, and I'm sure. uh, and hopefully that will find give you enough time to find a really <laughs> profound example as opposed to the rather um, vanilla one that I'll, I'll offer you. Um, but, but you know, it seems such an odd thing to say that the, the conversation is possibly uh, a part of the answer to this disharmony when. Ever since as a species, we've lifted our knuckles from the ground and and, um, acted in in some ways uh, like a civilization. We've had the capacity for language, and it it seems odd given that genetic capacity and our practice of it for millennia that we should be holding something so basic up as as a solution. Uh, But but I think that's the truth. I, I think it's very simple we need to rediscover what it is to actually engage in authentic conversation with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, uh, I moved to Omaha, Nebraska about 13 years ago and in the first few years trying to Mm -hmm. find my way into a new community that was somewhat strange to me. um, I wasn't satisfied with the level or rather the depth of the conversation that I was having. There was plenty of pleasantries. There were a lot of nice, warm people, but I found it very hard to get deeper where I felt as if a genuine, meaningful human connection was being forged through this dialogue. Um, and over time, I somewhat forced the issue with people, and that meant having to be a little more vulnerable myself and open myself and I do remember one ex- uh, one particular lunch that I was having with a, a professional contact, and he remarked to me that he really looked forward to seeing a lunch appointment with me on his calendar because he knew that that lunch appointment wasn't just going to be talking about the Nebraska Huskers and how our kids were doing at school yeah. and how bad property taxes were. He said, "I always know that I'm going to be talking about something that is interesting and unexpected." And makes me think even after the lunch is finished. And at that moment, I realized th- this is what I'm missing. And this is perhaps the strength or the skill that I should exploit if I'm going to do anything good in the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's incredible. I, that's a beautiful moment. And I think you made a really great point earlier. This is something, conversation is something everybody expects. We all expect that we know how to do. And we define ourselves as extroverts or introverts or I'm good at this or I can engage with that. But we're not thinking about it in the way you're saying now and in the way also that Civity thinks about it is is this deep, direct, honest, authentic engagement um, that goes beyond or pushes through those pleasantries, which can keep us, I guess, keep us safe. I mean, who knows why we developed in that direction. But w- I think... Uh, there, it's a lost art in a sense and so uh, coming to that or reaching that conclusion and then deciding hey I'm going to actually make this a deliberate thing I'm going to deliberately engage people differently and, and approach this differently I, I still believe there's, a, there's a, an attitude out there of oh well we, we don't need this we already know how to do it and yet the work you're doing the work Civity's doing and others is showing just how profound an impact this can have to get at some of these issues that are now becoming structural in our society mm. so that's incredible
1: Mm -hmm. I I don't know who is the source of this quote, but um, it goes something along the lines of there being no such thing as dialogue anymore, just intersecting monologues. Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. I have heard that, and and it's true. We all are so concerned about what do I have to say? Wait, I want to share. Wait. And, and I, I mean, just being who I am, I can feel myself sometimes someone is talking and I, I'm ready to say what I want to say and I'm like, stop just you're Oh, they, what they're saying is actually interesting. I, I love it. And, 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 and I think it's also, you know, there's another part of it is being aware of yourself, but, but helping people engage mm-hmm. in this way is incredible. So, mm-hmm. you know, you started doing this in your life and then you made it, formal you created squish talks so talk a little bit about that what from this oh i'm this is something i can contribute to the people around me to i'm going to make this a very structured part of my life and and really uh, focus on it as a mission
1: well i'd love to say that i have all the answers <laughs> um and that this is a huge roaring success um and, and and it is successful in many ways but but it's it's relatively new so Although Squish Talks was founded in 2010, uh, it, it was, I think, the sort of common parlance is a side hustle. It, it was my side hustle. Mm-hmm. And um, it was only in uh, the spring of 2016 that I decided that I should respond to it as a calling and see if I could um follow it as a passion, but also in a way that could pay the bills and uh, keep the lights on every month. Um, So that meant that I needed to formalize it in some way and and, and turn the kind of programmatic work I was doing into a a set of programs, processes, uh, uh, workshops, and the like that had um, monetary value to the world so that I could basically have a living while at the same time um contributing to hopefully the betterment of of the world um it won't surprise people. I don't think if I share with them that doing good in the world often doesn't pay um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean <True>. the truth. <laughs> <laughs> So you know these are the these are the realities we have to live with and and rather than sort of um open my window and shake my fist at the world yeah. um
0: But it pays in you, different ways, right? Yeah, it
1: pays. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like a whole human being and um there's bread on the table. So these are these are good things. Mm-hmm. Um But uh so so I do community work and certainly we can touch on that a little bit too, but also mm-hmm. um I do corporate work as well and and the themes are really very similar and I I struggled with that a little bit. I struggled with the idea that um why would I do this for corporate America? And and a friend pointed out to me, you know, have you seen the the data around disengagement? I mean, everybody knows that the majority of the American workforce is not engaged in their workplace or with the work that they do. So anything you do to assist in building relationships in that environment is making a meaningful contribution to the lived experience of, of people. Um, so my work splits between both community and, and, and the corporate world.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the the themes are similar, but I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, paying bills and all of that. Uh, we as, in the U.S. society anyway, I obviously can speak, I can't speak to Europe the way you can, but is the almighty dollar really has sort of taken on a new power in that, you know, we want to privatize our education systems. We want to privatize mm-hmm. our health systems. We want, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the, the stock market's doing well, so we must be doing all right. And, and the, idea of, wow, I can sleep at night or I feel like a whole person are not riches that we as a society here in the US uh, put a lot of stock in. And yet when we feel them, oh, this feels nice. Wow, this is actually good. But that's not what our narrative is. And so I guess if we start on, on corporate America. Uh, when you walk in and and do this, I'm curious sort of what kind of engagement you do get or what sort of response you get from people when you bring this to the table. Uh, and you know, at least to start. And then if that transforms or evolves at all,
1: you know, it's interesting that you use the word narrative. And I think I would summarize some of our ills by saying that we, we are telling the wrong stories to each other. Mm-hmm. And part of Civity's work, I think, and part of Squirtalk's work is to invite us into sharing more personal, meaningful stories, which sounds a little opaque, but I think if we as neighbors are sharing stories about what really matters and how we experience the world, if we as colleagues and employees are doing the same thing, then incrementally the kinds of stories we tell and the kinds of value that they surface for us, will shift the overall social narrative. Um, but for now, to answer your question directly, mm-hmm. um, most CEOs, most managers, most employees, at a level that they can't articulate, feel alienated. They feel hollow, mm-hmm. and they, they can sense that at, a, at a level that defies easy description but they know it. It's it's a little like describing, you know, love um, and other emotions. You you have to feel it. However, um, I need uh, a CEO to sign a contract, and usually when, that's when the rational brain kicks in. Um, and um, usually, if a CEO is sold intuitively, the CFO will ask what what this does for the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the answer to that is if a business needs the case made for the use of conversation to build relationships, then then I just point to the outcomes, which include self-aware leaders, leaders that can act with uh, empathy and understanding and therefore um, don't tell their staff to follow them, but um, inspire their staff to follow them. Um, similarly, with teams, I think there's plenty of good data, whether it's from Google, uh, uh, MIT, and elsewhere, that tells us that fundamentally, better, higher performing teams are those that have stronger interpersonal relationships. It's not rocket science. It's hard to do, mm-hmm. but the answer is there, and that's not um, that's not new. Um, and then culture at large um, i think it was Aldous Huxley uh, paraphrasing him a little bit but but he talked about corporations and organizations as organized lovelessness <laughs> and that's that's what we're feeling and and it doesn't again it doesn't take that many Gallup Q12 surveys to tell us that people are disengaged yeah. and one of the reasons why they ask the best friend at work question as part of their Q12 employee engagement survey is because of the importance of meaningful relationships between us in the workplace, and that has a direct impact on performance and productivity, so those are kinds of discussions I have, but most of the time people feel it they they can sense it
0: yeah yeah hey, that's a good point and and they don't know what to do with it and and yeah and I, you know it's funny corporations just i think about i teach mass communication as one of the courses and I teach and um We talk a lot about corporations. They're not out to be evil or out to be heartless or loveless or anything like that, but that's not the mission. The mission is to make money and whatever will do that. The mission is to be profitable, to be solvent, et cetera. You know, whereas a public a public access organization or a nonprofit that has a different mission. A mission is to serve whatever, help this group. And, and sometimes in the quest for being solvent and increasing the bottom line, et cetera, these types of things get forgotten when, as you so astutely point out, they can have a good impact on the bottom line. They can uh, make people feel more engaged, increase productivity. I mean, do all of these things. Um, but they're, squ- they're soft, they're squishy, like Squish Talks, and, and so mm-hmm. they, they aren't valued uh, right at the outset.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I think there's a lot of movement too in contemporary uh, business environments that recognize that the route to sustainable financial health is through the nurturing and nourishing and growth of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not necessarily a common application. And I think all the while that. Uh, the overall motive is profit, and it's recognized that the way to get there sustainably is through people. Still, may be putting those in the wrong order. Um, right. Perhaps there should just simply be a focus on people, and we work out the ways to make that sustainable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: yeah. You also talk, I, I watched your incredible TED Talks, or two of your TED Talks, and, um, and I believe this is where you talked about critical thinking and critical thinking, media literacy. Uh, are, are huge in my life. And so I, I'm, I want to explore that with you a little bit about how conversation can improve or increase critical thinking. Um, what do you mean by that?
1: Um, so one aspect to that is to, well, let's quote uh, Michel de Montaigne, who said that conversation is exercise for the mind. And uh, I, I I think we, well, let me speak for myself. I, I, let, let's not make it general. Quite often, I talk utter rubbish, mm-hmm. and I don't know what I'm saying. But the reason why I'm happy to get it out of my head and, and into dialogue on the table is because it is a way to get a concept out of me and into the public sphere and to use conversation with other people to unravel, criticize, inspire um, Review and audit whatever it is that's going on in my mind, and in collaboration with someone else through dialogue, to actually achieve some sense of understanding that that wasn't happening just inside the four walls, as it were of my of my brain mm-hmm. um so that that is one way to enhance critical thinking um the other is to borrow from some of the literature by people that have studied. Innovation and uh, I think Stephen Johnson Berlin, in his book Where Good Ideas Come From, talks about this collision of hunches as the generator, the catalyst for uh, breakthrough, breakthrough ideas, new ideas. And these occur in those situations where you say something to someone else that inspires them to think slightly differently, that in turn inspires someone else to think differently and all of a sudden you join up these dots that couldn't be seen before and and dialogue itself is this catalyst to revelation that leads you to see things in in different ways. So so there's something, too, in the literature around innovation that that, um, speaks to this idea of uh, creativity. I I think it's – maybe it's apocryphal, but I I think Crick and Watson, when they were developing the uh, double helix Mm -hmm. and and their thoughts around DNA – um, certainly they'd read the literature, scientific literature, but they found a lot of insight came from getting a pint with uh, their fellow scientists um, and just having casual dialogue um, yeah. in an informal a, in atmosphere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. And, and while you're having casual dialogue, you're building connection, fil- familiarity, trust, um, and, which allows us to be open to new ideas or to having ideas shape us. And hopefully as I, you know, as, as I talk about a lot and that you mentioned as well, uh, increasing our curiosity about things that we hadn't before been curious about, which is again, extremely valuable at all from conversation. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I love that idea that you point out that, that I hadn't really thought about just in this, in this moment, but you talk about trust and openness and, you know, we live in a society where I think, um, shame and embarrassment and humiliation uh, are avoided at all costs. Um, And if dialogue can help us build a relationship with someone else to build trust, then it makes us more open to the idea of risk. And maybe saying something that could be seen as stupid or doing something that may make us look foolish, but knowing that we have built up some resilience through this dialogue, that we can take the risk. Of, of chancing an idea in public.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, not necessarily with conversation, but if, a, if a, st- a student of mine or anybody really, but I think of it in the context of students, if they do something and, and then I see that they're embarrassed, you know, I oh, I do that all the time. You know, it's okay. It's, that's totally normal. You know, just like trying to help them normalize it, to feel better so that they will take risks because I don't want them to close up and feel afraid to try something again. And, um, and, and so just trying to make the, and hopefully they trust me enough or I've built the trust with them enough that they'll be like, oh, okay, I can do this in front of her because she's experienced it and she's not going to laugh at me and, and I can take this risk and maybe find something. Um, And so, so I've only applied, I've applied it to action, but you're right, conversation, that's exactly how how it goes, or yeah, that's beautiful.
1: That's that's so interesting, and it's it's taken me a few decades of of life to actually build up the self awareness and my own vulnerability to to realize that I truly deeply admire those people around me that are not only physically courageous, uh, and I admire that uh, immensely, but also that demonstrate through an, an inquisitiveness, a curiosity, a willing to share ideas mm-hmm. um, with other people that that's a profound display of courage too. And yeah. I, I admire it when I see it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when you said that, I was, I, I'm sorry, I always jump to my nieces. I've got five nieces and two nephews and all of them are amazing. And there's one in particular who's, she's extremely blunt and it's wonderful. I mean, to the point where she, offend, you know, she says offensive things, but not to be offensive. She's just making observations, you know, like she'll tell me, she'll be like, Oh, I see more gray hairs than you're... I'm like you do because it's a fact. They're there, you know. And it's like I'm not embarrassed by that. That's kind of a fact. But but I love that she first of all notices her world and then is not afraid to say it and tell and say how she feels too. And I and I know that there are a lot of kids who are like that. And it's it's just you, this at some point at least in this society that gets de-emphasized or discouraged. And and so, I'm, so I find myself thinking a lot, how do I preserve this in her? How do I make sure she's always this courageous, as you say, that she's always, that she understands the value of this type of observation and discussion, you know, obviously maybe being a little kinder, but, but, also, but, but also, you know, that she's just as blunt, that she's just as observational, that she contributes just as much and then listens because she'll say stuff and we'll have a great conversation about it. And then she'll be like, huh, okay, and she'll take it with her um so so you know i'm like how do i preserve this and and it's and it's a challenge in society because i can't control when she's at school or when someone says something to her in society and you know and and so when you're doing the work you're doing and other people are doing this type of work it it's it's hopeful because it's like oh good people are actually actively thinking about how to preserve and and reinvigorate this type of thing
1: That that may be a segue into a topic that you alluded to a little bit earlier, which is the role of technology in our world.
0: I did Um, want to talk about that. Yes.
1: Well, to your niece's situation, um, um, and again, this makes me sound like a a, a commodion, it's not my intention, but but (laughs) I was born and schooled, and then my early professional career was in a landscape where the fax machine was high technology. Right. Um, And so I, uh, like many people listening, will have transitioned with this shift from pre-internet to um, post-internet lived experience. Um, The speed of technology, though, I I, I think is maybe shifting some of our psychologies. And and so for your niece, um, she's living in a landscape where... Those opinions and observations she's making are um they become a part of a permanent record and, right. and they also become pretty instantly right. and on a large scale subject to judgment mm-hmm. and Most of the mistakes I made in my early years they were witnessed by a few people they laughed at me, they scolded me uh whatever the cause happened to be, but they haven't lived on in my permanent record as of who I am right. And that, I think, is something that we're still navigating. I'm not saying it's good or bad or technology is right or wrong. I'm not anti-technology. But how we relate to it, I think, is still being navigated.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly the way I feel. Whatever it is, it is. I mean, people didn't like the telegraph. They didn't like the typewriter. There used to be competitions in the newsroom from people who didn't want to use the typewriter, uh, speed competitions who could write the story faster to prove that the typewriter was a good thing in the newsroom. You know, it's it's um. whenever a new technology comes out, there's a lot of concern about it. But yes, this one in particular is so massive that it requires a lot of thought about navigation and a lot of time and a lot of trial and error and you're right we have not figured it out even though for my nieces and nephews who are all they're age 4 to 18 they are they have grown up, as you say, you and I both, I'm with you. We, we grew up, thank God, my mistakes are not on camera, they're not on tape, they're not on video. Um, but they, they're growing up in this life where it's been their whole life and yet we still haven't figured out completely how to navigate this in a way that's, that's healthy. I mean, sometimes we navigate it healthily, but in a lot of ways you're right. If you have that trust, that connection with someone and you make a mistake or you misspeak or whatever, yeah, you'll get chastised, pushed back, and understood in a sense, and you'll learn and you'll grow. But when you misspeak in front of a million strangers or ten million strangers, there's not that compassion or empathy for you. Um, mm. There's the YouTube comment section, which is no fun. There's you know, um, and I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, there are many examples, but Monica Lewinsky's TED talk. Uh, mm. she, yeah, she gave a TED talk on the price of shame, talking about her experience uh, during the Clinton years and how that a- affected her life. And it was brilliant if you've ever watched it. If if you haven't, I've, I recommend it highly. Well, the TED Talk people posted it and they said within seconds, it, I mean it was 20-minute talk, so clearly these people hadn't watched it. Within seconds, the comments were nasty, the triolic, like they said they'd never they'd seen nasty things, but nothing like this. And they were shocked. I mean, you know, as shocked as you can be when you expect some of it. And then they decided they were gonna they were gonna counter it. And so they got in there and spent days upon days cleaning out the vitriol and were able to then curate a space for good conversation, deep, thorough conversation. But they had to curate, they had to guide, they had to direct, you know, and, and of course most technology sites, social media, comment threads, there isn't that curator there. And without the connection, the trust, the accountability to each other, you're right, people who misstep or whatever get you know blown apart and 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 it makes us less likely to step out and take that risk
1: i um I usually find great comfort and i I have an academic crush on sherry Turkle who <laughs> has researched and written and spoken a lot about this subject and uh I think she covers a lot of this uh this ground with great insight and um there's much to be learned i think from from her her insights on the subject. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I will definitely look more into, I've heard her name, but I haven't looked at, at her stuff. But, you know, this is definitely on acceleration with technology, but it's not as if it's brand new to when the internet dawned. You know, this is something we as a society have been dealing with for a while. So I, you know, I I, I understand that you took a trip around Nebraska where you're currently living, Yes. And and uh, I, it just just for the purpose of having conversations with people, so I am really curious, especially as someone from California who is open to people, but you know knows all the stereotypes and and has a little bit of concern for how people in the, um, you know, the middle of our country think about certain issues. I really would love to learn from you what happened, you know, uh, and maybe if you could talk about some of the conversations that did stand out to you in in this experience.
1: Mm. So the journey itself, again, not unique, just borrowing from other people, but I spent four weeks in an RV traveling small towns uh small roads and, and, and visiting small towns in nebraska and so you know one can think of Steinbeck's travels with charlie for example mm-hmm. as a as a as a precursor um, for that sort of idea um, and yes, you know many of these small towns i think the smallest was about three hundred and fifty people uh, the largest was maybe twenty uh fifteen twenty thousand people um And I think it's reasonable to assume that most of these places were predominantly right-leaning. Most of them were uh, Christian. There was not a lot of ethnic diversity. Um, And none of that necessarily is planned. These are just facts of uh, the existence and history of of these places. Um, Now, I didn't go with the intention of Provoking uh, responses. I, I wanted to be as open and as honest and as vulnerable with people I met as they should, uh, as I wanted them to, to, to be with me. But I didn't go to uh, catalyse uh, and provoke a certain response. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, uh, in, in the face of in the face of that, I clearly was a stranger in these towns and instantly recognisable as such. And um, I. Didn't plan to hide or conceal any of my beliefs. I'm an atheist. I am on the socialist end of the political spectrum. Um, And if this came up in conversation, then it came up. And uh, I I can say it came up fairly often. Uh, People weren't shy about talking uh, about politics. They weren't afraid about talking about religion. Uh, We didn't hone in on those subjects straight away. We talked a lot about community um, what the history of the place was like, what people's personal narratives were. And if anything, I, I think I would sum up the, the nature of my response by, by saying that when I got home after four weeks, my wife said that I appeared to have uh, a, a greater appreciation for humanity at large and also a greater humility. Um, Hmm. in the face of that humanity. And it's remarkable to me that if you truly attend upon other people in conversation with an authentic spirit of openness, with an intention to listen first and openly engage, it is remarkable how the humanity of other people just warms and responds Hmm. with sincerity to such an invitation, um and I found that time and again in in my conversations. Uh many people uh couldn't understand why I was an atheist, but but we had uh, bold conversations about that. Um I, I was warmly welcomed into the um the group of old guys in the diner eating uh, uh donuts and, you know, drinking bad coffee. And um <laughs> they would um at that time talk uh, terribly about Nancy Pelosi and about uh Hillary Clinton. Um, But nonetheless, were open to my interpretation of uh, those uh, particular narratives. Um, So many conversations like that, um, and um, many of them stood out, far too too many to mention.
0: What do you think they gave to you? I mean, you talked about coming home, and your wife noticed uh, an increase in humility, and and, and that's inside you, and I'm sure you're going to say that they gave that to you. But what do you think they gave back to you? Because you took a massive risk in being vulnerable with them, and of course you have no idea whether they're going to shout you out of the room or do whatever, or they're going to be kind, what, you know, what What did they give to you that that um, allowed the humanity to grow? If that makes sense.
1: It does. And I, I think I could offer an answer, but the truth is I... Still have a lot of unknowns mm-hmm. around this. Um, I don't know, for example, how it impacted uh, the nature of these engagements. Uh, not only was I a stranger, but I was an exotic stranger. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as I heard my accent, I, I think I became an object of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, I am um, ethnically white, and I'm a man, and I, I don't know if it would have been different if I'd been of different uh, a different appearance. Who knows? Mm-hmm. These are these are very difficult. A uh, um, uh, uh, question to answer because really there is no answer um, to, to that. My my overwhelming sense is though that um, if you, meaning me uh, in this instance, uh, are willing to be open and vulnerable enough, that somehow that is recognised by other people, and it is intoxicatingly attractive. To people, to have someone actively sit and invite them to be heard. And it's such a powerful and generous gift to give to people that it's, um, I, I, I found it universally accepted.
0: Wow. I've, I just love that. Um, there's a, and you, I know you gave a lot, too, to get this, and I'm, it's it's thrilling that you got so much back. There is one quote that you had said, and I believe it was in your TED Talk, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And you said, through empathy, we get to see the world through the eyes of thousands of lives of others. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift, too, is to, is to learn about other people's experience. I know that in my young life, I did it through books, you know, but... Um, to, to learn about other lives and to really build that understanding. Do you come away with, I know that this isn't about politics at all, and I don't want to necessarily go there, but I do want to ask you because you brought up these stark cultural differences, atheism versus mm. Christianity, um, you know, conservative versus socialist uh, feelings about specific people in the political world. Do you find that you have a great, not that, of course, not that you've agreed or disagreed, but do you have a greater understanding of why they uh, are where they are on those things. And and in that understanding, f- find connection?
1: I find hope. I don't know about connection, but I do find hope. Um, I think I am like uh, a good portion of the population across the country that spent much of last year um, not only in despair and bemusement, but um, I'll be honest and say I had my own personal struggle with endeavoring not to hate other people mm-hmm. uh, for, for the views that they seem to, be, that seem to be embodied by their political stances. And I struggled with that. And, and my salvation in, in many ways is the simple fact that, um, that life is much more complicated. And if, if you just take the time to speak to people about their story and their narrative and their background that it's it's never as basic as punching you know the chad through the the electoral vote it it's rarely the assumptions that we make about other people it's it's um always something else and it's always something recognizable even if you don't agree with it mm-hmm. and so the experience of that journey told me that if if you just stop at judging people because of the electoral vote then then that's on you that that's my problem mm-hmm. um you have to scratch the surface and understand that there's a much bigger story behind that. Oh, wow, there's a
0: much bigger story behind that. Um, we are coming up on, uh, near the end of our time, so just have a couple more quick questions for you. And one of them is, you, this type of work, it's easy on social media to put out a message of negativity of whatever, of any message at all. It's more difficult to go one by one and take the time to do something like you did, travel around your state. Or, um, you know, it, it's much more difficult and more of a—I don't want to use the word a slog, but it's it, you know one to one to one to one to one takes much longer than one to many. Um, so I'm curious, do you, what would you like to say to people listening about how they can they can do this work in their lives, and how mm-hmm. you and and what you hope to see as far as getting it out there to more people and 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 and, and helping more people understand the value and the power and the reality and the um the ability to have this type of conversation?
1: Let's not shy away from the hard work. Um, We're so tempted, especially in modern culture, to look for something that can scale, that can be efficient and implemented with greater ease. Um, Let's not do that. Let's make it really hard. The hard work, but the more meaningful work, is the one-on-one. Um, so I would say to anybody listening, don't try to scale it. Let's not try and amplify and maximize this. Literally just take the time to turn to one other human being in your embodied proximity and just be nice to them. Just ask some questions. Be open about exploring who, who they are. And if we all did that, that scales. But let's do the hard work. It takes time, but, but that's the answer. It is hard. So Still, do it.
0: Excellent, excellent work. It's true. We forget that hard is a, the hard is what makes it great, as they say in in uh, League of Their Own, my favorite baseball movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to say that I haven't asked you today?
1: I, I uh, w- well, no. Other than um, <laughs> we didn't really talk too much about uh, civility, but but I think a lot of what we talked about is it boils down to the same thing. We we are all so familiar in so many ways and similar. Um, But we're also so different and we get to celebrate the differences if if we just take the time to try and discover those in each other and to be discovered in turn. And yet, fundamentally, we have many of the same urges, a sense of desire to belong, uh, to be intimately connected, to to feel as if there is more to life um, outside of us. and, And we all yearn for those those things.
0: Absolutely true. Thank you for bringing that up, and it's true. I, the work you're doing is is so deeply civility oriented, and and you're right. Like it, we can find connections, if not in our political beliefs, at least in our desire for humanity and a good life, and and mm-hmm. other things like that. Um, yeah. We've been talking today with uh, Stuart Chittenden, founder uh, Chittenden founder of Squish Talks. It's been a pleasure to have you here uh, on this is Civility Radio show. Civility helps people in communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference, and our interviews. Explain how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. I'm Gina Baleria. Thank you so much, Stuart, for being on with me. And thank you. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Thank you.